0: How did I know you would laugh at that, Billy? Were you called Billy Willie at school? I feel your pain, mate. Um, one of my friends um, went to this conference thing one year, and there was like marketing um, like, literature you could sign up for, and she decided to sign me up for everything that you could possibly sign up for, and she co- addressed it to Gemma Willybug. Um, at my mum and dad's home address. Um, So from the age of 12 until I moved out at about 18, my mum and dad got letters to Gemma Willeyburg all that time from about 18 different people, wasn't it? Yeah, every year. So I hated nicknames, absolutely hated them. So once I left school, I kind of just didn't get given nicknames anymore. Paul occasionally called me Germ, which I never really understood, and it didn't catch on, so it was all good. But other than that, I didn't have a nickname at all, whereas loads and loads of my friends did. Um, And I had a job at the time, while I was doing news re- reading for um, a local radio station and um, I remember being sat in the, in the newsroom one day in the office and everyone was talking about their nicknames and I just stayed quiet the entire time because I was like, haven't got one and I'm not interested. So I like, tried to keep my head down I was typing away and then eventually this guy was like, Gemma, what's your nickname? And I was like, oh, I haven't got one. And he was like, right, leave it with me. And I was like, oh no, please, like, I don't want this. Like, like, please don't give me a nickname. That just egged him on all the more. He was like, we're definitely getting you a nickname now. And this is going to be amazing. So there was like 15 of us in this office. And they all sat there for about an hour on um, license fees, fee's payers time. Sorry. And they were trying to figure out a nickname for me. And they started off with G-Force, which I wasn't a fan of at all. And then it eventually evolved into GMAX. Um, My name is Gemma, and my surname is Maxwell. So I was like, G-Max, really? And he was like, that is it. That is your name from now on. You are G-Max. So I was like, great. So for the rest of the day, I was called G-Max. And then it kind of caught on, and then more people in the office below were calling me G-Max. And I was like, oh no, this has become a thing now. I'm going to be called G-Max. And then the worst thing happened. I went into, basically when you're doing a radio show, you have um, a place and a desk where your presenter sits and they have all of their controls, and then there's a panel of glass, and when you're the newsreader, when it's your time to do your bit on the hour and every half an hour, you come into the other side and you have your own little desk, but you stand up and you do the news, and you wait for the presenter to kind of cue you in, introduce you, so it comes to like 5 to 12, and I grab my scripts, and I run downstairs, walk into the, um, the newsreader bit, and I put up the microphone, there was a song playing so we can chat with the presenter, and he's like, alright Max, how you doing? And I was like oh don't you star and he was like no 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 I love the nickname it's amazing and I was like yeah whatever just get over it and he was like okay well um are you ready everything good to go I was like yeah I'm fine and he goes like okay right then we're going live and three two and then he puts his fader up and he goes and here with the 12 o'clock news it's GMAX I could not believe he had even said it. You know those moments where you just want the ground to swallow you whole? I was like, are you joking? And I'm just staring at him on the other side of the glass and he's looking at me. He can't believe that he's said it um, because he's going to get in loads and loads of trouble and not allow us to do that kind of thing. It was meant to be a serious thing. And then I have to go... Uh, here with your latest headlines. I'm Gemma Maxwell. 73 people have died in Pakistan in an earthquake. And it's like, I just couldn't believe it happened. And then we come out of the thing and after the news bulletin's finished, I come out to see him and he's like, I'm so sorry. I was like, you called me G-Max on the air. And he was like, I know, I'm so sorry. And then we both turned around and tapping on the glass was my editor. And he's a really nice guy, but if you do something wrong, he's a really mean guy. And he just looked at us and then the presenter got absolutely told off. But my nickname stuck, that was it. For the rest of time in that job, I only stayed there another year, I was G-Max um, and then I left him, but hopefully it's sort of died a death now. But that for me, it was a painful thing. Nicknames, I do not enjoy, the pain is real. So two weeks ago, sorry I didn't speak last week, I was meant to, and then I had to take my brother to the Cardiff Half Marathon. So thank you, Lewis, for stepping in. Um, But two weeks ago, I spoke um, on the first part of, um, of this preaching series about how some people have decided that pain, the subject of pain, the problem of pain, maybe is God's biggest mistake. That surely if there is a loving and a good God, then why is pain in the picture? Surely something went wrong, he messed up, he did his calculations wrong, we shouldn't be experiencing pain. And I talked a little bit about how pain has been a part of my world for a little while now. I have something called endometriosis and I have another thing called polycystic ovaries and a long battle with trying to get pregnant um, resulting most recently in having a miscarriage. And I can totally understand why people think that pain is a mistake. I can get completely behind that. I've been through all the motions of questioning and arguing and doubting and just asking God why on earth he lets these things happen. Not just my situation, there are so much bigger things going on in the world that are bringing awful physical or emotional pain to people, like death or cancer or natural disaster or crazy gunmen in Las Vegas doing terrible, unspeakable things. There is pain everywhere, we can't ignore it. I've been trying to do some reading on this subject, and there's a famous author called C.S. Lewis. He's a Christian author. You probably know him from writing the books of um, Narnia. And he had a life that was full of pain, and he famously came to the conclusion that pain was God's megaphone to the world. It was a method in which he could speak to us. So he accepted that pain was there, that pain was present, but he said maybe God can do something with it. And then an author who's still around today called Philip Yancey, he did some research and he decided that he didn't believe that God causes our pain, but that he does believe God can use our pain. He doesn't cause it, but he will use it. And that's really where I landed the other week. That is where I've been stuck ever since, just thinking, I want God to use what I have been through, what I am going through. So I want to pick up at that point this morning and say that pain is a fact and we can't escape it. But if we don't want what we feel and what we've experienced, what we've been through to be in vain, then how can we start trying to use that to do something else for God to move in it ourselves? And the first thing I landed on was that we need to face our pain to get healing. We need to face our pain. It's really, really dangerous to ignore pain. It's extremely destructive to know that you have something going on that has been painful for you, but to just push it down inside and not address it. That is a really, really dangerous and destructive thing to do. Sometimes we just try and ignore it. We try and put a face on. We try and say, yeah, do you know what? Things have happened to me or something happened to me when I was a kid or yes, I've experienced pain through growing up or something circumstances going on, but do you know what? I don't want to address that. I don't want to face it. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to have to dig that up. I don't want to have to go there. So we ignore it and we push it down and we leave it there and we pretend it's not there. And sometimes that is in the pursuit of trying to be a good Christian. There is no such thing. We think, do you know what? I don't want to admit how bad things were for me as a kid or how tough stuff has been for me or how much that thing hurt me because then that kind of opens up a load of questions to is God good or not and I don't want to go there. So I'm just gonna walk away, leave that there, ignore that. I feel like somebody, maybe a couple of people, but definitely somebody needs to know this morning that God is big enough for your questions. He is more than big enough for your questions. He can take all of your arguments. He can take all of your anger, all of your distrust, all of your disbelief, all of your doubts. He can take it all and not be offended. He will not walk away from you. He will not disown you. He will not say, do you know what, I'm done with you. He can take it all. If you have those questions, if you have those feelings inside, you can give it to Him. He can handle it. Don't keep pushing your pain down, ignoring it, hoping it will go away suppressing your emotions, but instead make a decision to be brave enough to face it. Because God is interested in who you really are. He's not interested in a fake, suppressed, beaten up inside, but pretending everything's okay on the outside version of you. He's interested in the real you, warts and all. And when we stop pretending, playing the game, and we're actually honest with ourselves, we can meet God in a new and fresh and exciting and honest way. There's an amazing story in the New Testament. And it's probably heard it before, but it's about two brothers that are living with their dad. And they're both there, and the dad is rich and wealthy. They work on a farm together. And the younger brother, he decides that he wants to ask his dad for his inheritance money early. He doesn't want to wait until his dad is gone. He wants it now, and he's going to go off and do loads of things. So he gets the money, and his dad is like, yep, you can have it. That's fine. And he goes off, and he leaves the older brother at home to carry on working with the dad. And the younger brother, he goes off and he just spends all the money on loads of crazy things, loads of stupid things. He makes loads of mistakes. He doesn't have a great time. And in the end, he comes crawling back to his dad. And he's like, Dad, you know what? I've messed up. I've made a load of mistakes. I've spent all your money. I'm not happy. I really just want to come home. And the dad is amazing. And he just opens his arms and he says, "Yep, yeah, come on in. I forgive you. Let's have a feast. Absolutely amazing story. But we often stop there and focus on the younger son and the fact that he did something really bad and then he came back to his dad and his dad is like, don't worry, all the grace, all the forgiveness is yours, don't worry. But what I love about the Bible is you can take stories like that that you've probably heard a hundred million times and you can look at it again and go, God, what else are you saying? And for me, God really shined a light on the oldest brother for me, the other son, the son that stayed behind. And we pick it up in Luke chapter 15 verse 25 it says this the older son was in the field and as he came closer to the house he heard the sound of music and dancing so he called to one of the servants and asked what does this all mean and the servant said your brother's come back and your father killed the fat calf because your brother came home safely the older son was angry and would not go into the feast so his father went out and begged him to come in but the older son said to his father I have served you like a slave for many years and have always obeyed your commands, but you never even gave me a young goat to have a feast with my friends. But your other son, who wasted all your money on prostitutes, comes home and you kill the fat calf for him. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me and all I have is yours. Son, you are always with me and all I have is yours." The older son in this story was mad because he had stayed close and he had stayed faithful and his eyes, he had done everything right all the time and yet he wasn't the star of the party. But the dad says to him, look, I was always with you and everything here, everything I have, everything I am is yours. But he just couldn't see it. He has stayed there. He kept his head down. He didn't face anything. He just did the day in, the day out and he got stuck in a rut completely stuck, so much so that he couldn't see the amazing things that were around him that took his brother to go away and be without for him to realize. The brother refused to face his issues and he was left out in the cold, missing out on the party on the inside. Are there issues that you're refusing to face? Has stuff happened to you that you don't want to bring up? Are you missing out on a bigger reward because you want to play it safe and pretend that everything is okay all the time when deep down you know that you are hurting? If that's you, I just urge you to have courage this morning. I know it's really scary. I know we're not used to in our lives, people being at the front somewhere and saying direct challenge to people, saying, do you know what, if you feel this, if your heart is pounding a little bit right now, if you think you're the only person in the room and you're like, gosh, how do they know that thing about me? How do they know I'm doing that? Then you're not alone. I know we're not used to that, unless you have like an incredibly bossy spouse. Like sometimes I get home, stand up on the kitchen and tell Adam like that dishwasher needs to be done. And he obeys, it's a good thing we got going on. It's all good, happy marriage. But sometimes we're not used to this kind of thing when someone is here and directly challenging, directly saying, do you know what? There might be something in your life that you are trying to ignore and it's important that you have courage. Don't be afraid of that. I know it sounds scary and I've sat there and I've had it happen to me. But do you know what? The scariest thing is, is is just that moment when you know that you have to do something and all you have to do is have the courage to turn to someone and speak to them. And that is the hardest part of it have the courage to turn to someone that you know loves you, that you know you can trust, that you know will support you and share with them whatever it is, that pain that has been like hounding at you, that stuff you've pushed down, that stuff you've tried to ignore, the stuff that you thought, you know what, it was so long ago, it doesn't even matter anymore. Just turn to someone, share it with them. And that is the hardest bit done. From there in, it just gets better. the moment we face how we really feel, something happens. God is able to begin to use it. God begins to move within it. I remember a really low point in our fertility journey when um, I was trying all these different things and one of the things called RUI and you inject yourself for like, I think it was like three weeks straight with loads of stuff and you feel all over the place because hormones are crazy and all the rest of it and you go in for routine scans all the time and I remember going in one day and we were sort of towards the end of it about to do the procedure and I went for a scan and they found a huge cyst on my ovary and it was the size of a grapefruit. And they freaked out. The nurse really freaked me out, actually. She was like, oh, gosh, what's this? And I was like, no, that's not cool. That's not how you're meant to react. Be professional. Um, and she was like, oh, I've seen something. And they measured it. And she was like, yeah, I'm really sorry. But we're just going to have to stop treatment because this is dangerous now. Like, you could lose your ovary if this burst. This isn't going to be good. And I... It was just absolutely gutted. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that we had come that far and everything was happening right. And then all the things that I was meant to do, like taking the injections, they were making me sick. And I, I couldn't get my head around it. I was furious. I was so mad at God. I was so annoyed at my body. And I just, I remember that was in the morning and I went to work and I was in a really bad mood at work. And then I remember driving home and being just angry, just like, road rage, definitely. Um, and then just being mad at God, just shouting things at God. And then I came here because we had a prayer night. And I remember just being in the car and just being like, pull yourself together, Gem. Like You need to get over it. Like You can't be like this and you can't show anybody that you feel this way. So you just need to put a face on. And I remember walking through these doors and putting a face on, putting a smile on, walking in and pretending that everything was absolutely fine. I remember doing that. And I remember even thinking in the moment that that was cool of me to do that because I was able to push away my emotions, my own personal things, and still like be here and pray with people and offer advice when needed and all that kind of stuff. Like I thought that was a good thing to do. And then I left that night and I was driving home on the Queensway. And I think I've said this before, but um, a cat jumped out in front of my car and I ran over it. And I was... Ugh, I was absolutely distraught by the whole thing. And I ended up just being sat on the side of the road, sobbing uncontrollably. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm sad for the cat. Like, I'm an animal geek, like, until the day I die. I love animals. And I was so sad and all the rest of it. Um, But this woman was like, it wasn't your fault anyway, it was someone before you. But... In that moment, I realized that I wasn't actually crying about all of that. I was crying about everything else that I was feeling. And Adam had to come and literally pick me up and put me in the car and take me home. And I was just sobbing because I pushed down everything that I was feeling. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to be that person that was a mess for a while. I didn't want to be that person that had issues for a while or was broken for a while. That wasn't me. I didn't feel comfortable in that place. But I realized if I kept pushing it down, then it was just going to come out worse each time. And it wasn't until I finally just said, do you know what? I need help. I don't feel okay. I know I'm not okay. And I realized that that was acceptable. It changed everything for me. I just ditched my pride and asked for help, turned to friends and to family and was just able to be like, do you know what? I need some more support through this. I'm not doing as well as I want to be doing, and it was amazing. It didn't magically get me pregnant. It didn't make my whole world fluffy again, but it did make everything real, and that's where I could finally begin to have an honest relationship with God and not feel like I had to put a face on all the time and be afraid of what I was feeling. There's this incredible verse in Philippians chapter 4, and it just says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Rejoice is a really old-fashioned word. We were talking about this verse in our Fives group the other day. And one of the girls was like, what the hell does rejoice mean? And I was like, oh, right, yeah, sorry. It's one of those like Christian words that if you grow up in church, you kind of accept, but you never use it in your day-to-day vocabulary. No one is like, I'm rejoicing today. Like, it's not cool. But it basically means to be like celebrating something, to be full of joy, to be full of excitement, just to be absolutely like the pinnacle of being happy about something. That is rejoice. Now the guy that wrote this verse was amazing. He was a guy called Paul. Um, not this Paul way cooler. This Paul, um, he was against Christians. His big pursuit, his mission in life was to kill as many Christians as possible. This is what that guy was all about. And then he had an amazing moment where he met with Jesus one day and he turned his entire life around. And he decided that he wanted to spread the message of Jesus, tell as many people about Jesus as he possibly could. And that's what he dedicated the rest of his life to. But during that, At the moment when he wrote this verse, he was sat on a cold, hard prison floor. And to make it worse, he'd been sat there for two years. Two years in a prison. He's probably hungry, probably surrounded by rats. He would probably, it was dark, it was probably damp, it probably smelt in there. He probably had no one to keep him company apart from an occasional prison guard. And on top of that, on the way to going to prison, he'd been shipwrecked. And on top of that, he'd also been beaten severely time and time again for just being a Christian. And he also found out that the gospel, the message, everything he'd given his life to, it wasn't working out as well as he'd hoped. And some people were actually preaching a message against him. Everything that he had done wasn't going as well as he thought. He was suffering. He was in pain. And to make everything worse, he was sat there in prison waiting to be executed, waiting to die. And yet his words, rejoice. I don't believe for a second that he was brushing it off as if, oh, it's okay. I'm doing the good thing. I'm mustering up as much excitement as I possibly can. Everything's gonna be fine. I don't believe for a second he was doing that. I don't think he was ignoring anything that he had been through, or any of the pain that he was experiencing in that moment. I believe he was choosing to face it and meet God in that struggle. And because he was able to meet God in that pain, he was able to find joy and able to find hope. To take it as an inspiration from a guy that will probably know pain like none of us will know it. That if you push through it, if you have the courage to face it, if you turn to someone later today, in the week, next week, whenever it is for you and say, do you know what, I've got a few things that I think I need to work through. I've got some stuff that I think I need to finally face up to and it's gonna be hard, but I wanna give it a go. When you finally have that moment, remember as scary as that is, there is peace on the other side and there is even joy to be found on the other side. The second thing I wanna say this morning is that when we actually finally come to face our pain, it can end up being a massive comfort to other people. One of the greatest things about being brave and sharing our story, like Adonai, of stuff that we've been through, is the support that we've received from other people. It has literally blown us away. We have just had so many people come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, do you know what? I've been there. I've done IVF. It's a cow, isn't it? Yeah, it's horrendous. Or yeah, I've had three miscarriages. It's awful. Do you know what? You're going to be okay and you're going to get through it. It has been unbelievable, the comfort we've been able to get from other people. Because people understand pain. They totally get it. Whether you've been through the exact same situation or not, wherever there isn't empathy, there can always be sympathy. Wherever someone can't fully empathise with you, they can always try and sympathise. And I've had people 10 years younger than me who have got no idea what we've been through. And they have been the most supportive people ever to some of the stuff that we've been going through. It has been so humbling. And already along this journey, we've been able to use our experience to start ministering to other people as well, to start showing them that they can have some hope, that they shouldn't give up in what they're doing. So you face your pain so that you can be comforted and then you can give that comfort onto other people. There's another amazing story in the Bible. It's in the New Testament, in the book of John. And it's about a guy who's been sick for 38 years It doesn't say what he had or anything. It doesn't go into any more detail. It just says he's been sick for 38 years. I've got nothing on that. That's insane. He can't walk. We know that about him. And he's hanging out by a pool. Um, it's in the times in the New Testament, um, people believed that like, when there was nothing else to do, they were willing to try anything, that they would sit by this pool and maybe they would get healed if the Spirit of God came along and decided to do so. So he would just take his mat and he would drag himself along and he would sit on this mat by this pool and just wait every day to see whether he'd be healed. And then one day, Jesus comes along. And he does this. Jesus turns to the man and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Simple, completely simple. He's ill, he's sick, he can't walk. He's doing the same thing day in, day out. And he sat there and then Jesus comes along and interrupts his story, completely interrupts him and says, actually, do you know what? You, yeah, you, you. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the guy picks up his mat, gets up, and he walks away. 38 years of sickness, and he's healed just like that. But what I love about getting into these things and reading that story, it's an amazing story anyway, just an amazing testimony of healing. But what I love is the detail in it. The fact that Jesus says, pick up your mat. Why is that significant? Why is that in there? Why should, do we need to know that today? Because people would have recognized that man with his mat. They would know him as the guy that's been sick for 38 years, that sits at the side of the pool waiting to be healed. He has a mat. He can't walk. They would know him. He's the guy with the mat. The floor was horrible and dusty and dirty, and that would be the only thing that he'd be able to have a little bit of security to sit on. His mat, he would have been recognized by his mat. And if that guy had then got up, been healed, left his mat, and just walked around, he would have just been any other guy just walking around, any other bloke. But instead, Jesus says, do you know what? Take your mat with you. So he takes his mat, and when he's walking, people are like, oh, you're the guy with the mat. You're the guy that couldn't walk before. I know you. I know you in that map. What are you doing? You're walking around. It's his testimony. He's taking what he had, what Jesus did with him, and he's picking it up and he's saying, do you know what? I'm taking this with me because I'm going to show people what Jesus did for me. Paul, Sarah, do you want to come up? It's about picking up your mat and saying, do you know what? I'm not ashamed of what has happened to me. I'm not ashamed of anything that has happened to me. It's about acknowledging where we've come from. It's about accepting that work needs to be done in our lives. There's not a single person in here that is a finished product that can stand and say, yeah, do you know what? God's been like working on me for a few years and now I'm good. This This is great. You can all learn from me. There's nobody in here that is doing that. Everybody has got something that needs to be done. And you know what? When we first started this series, Adam said to me, we were away, and he was like, do you know what, Jem? I just really feel like during this series, we're going to need to like, talk about some of our stuff, and we're going to need to talk about losing a baby and everything that that kind of brings up and makes you feel. And I just, like, I wasn't up for it at all. I'll just to be completely honest with you. I wasn't up for it. The thought of having to say it all the time and to hear Adam say it, it's, yeah, just, no. I argued in my head about trying to get out of it all the time. I remember telling to Sarah one week when Adam first started the preaching series and just being like, I don't really want to be here because I don't really want to have to face it all the time, keep being reminded of it all the time. It was just too painful. And I just would have rather have ignored it and gone somewhere else. But actually, it's been incredible. It's been genuinely incredible because every time it's mentioned, every time we talk about it, I realise that I'm just holding my mat. That's all I'm doing. Jesus is doing something great through our pain. He's doing something great through our struggle. And I'm not going to be ashamed of that. And I'm not going to walk away from that. I want to pick up my mat and I want to walk with it held high so that other people, when they go through something that's really similar, they can see that I've been through that as well. And I might be able to help them. I might be able to show them the way to not feel so bad about it or to get over it or to find healing or comfort in it. I might be able to help them. And that's just me and my mat. Imagine what you guys have got. There's so many of us in this room and all the different experiences, all the different things we've been through in our lives, whether it's fresh or old, no matter what it is. But if you have that in your life and you're able to pick it up and hold it up and not be ashamed of it, but be inviting Jesus to come and do something amazing in it, you're possibilities are endless of the lives that you could change, of the difference that you could make in other people. Through facing pain, I have found comfort. And even though my situation isn't finished yet, I know it's going to be an amazing end of a story one day. And I'll hold my mat even higher then. But in the midst of it all, I've still managed to find peace. I still managed to find joy. So what is your map? I'm leaving that with you this morning. What is your mat? What is that thing that you have been through that you know Jesus could do something amazing through? Your pain, your struggles, or darker times. Because God wants to do amazing things through you. No one is exempt. You don't have to have a microphone. You just have to be willing to face it, to be brave, and then to walk with God through it.